Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Each person's journey is unique. Our goal is to connect survivors to resources along the way on their path to healing. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. We are here to help survivors get access to justice. Join us on this journey. Here is Support for Survivors. Hello, welcome to Support for Survivors. This is your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Today I'm joined by producer Jamie, and we're bringing you the first episode in our series on the prolific sexual abuse that happened for years on end within USA Gymnastics. Welcome, Jamie. Hi, Shaughnessy. How are you today? Good. How are you doing? You know, I'm all right. I'm rolling with it. We're good. We're good. Um, so you watched Athlete A. Yes. I've watched I, it a couple times now at this point. Me too. I think I've it's so it compelling. Times. It's really good. And I mean, there's so much information there. I think that you, I catch something different every time I watch it, but, um, you know, one of the things that struck me about this is that, you know, we've all watched gymnastics in the Olympics, like forever. Right. And I know that for me, at least when I watched it, I'm like, wow, this is so cool. And I think it's one of the things that everyone looks forward to. And everyone's always like women's gymnastics, women's gymnastics, women's gymnastics, because it's a revered program. They've produced world-class athletes and everybody loved it. Right. I mean, we were all in, we, and everybody was revered. We're like, wow, this is like, this sports organization's got it going on. Like they've done all this great stuff and look at their success rate. Definitely. I know that I've watched it as long, as far back as I can remember, I've always watched gymnastics and I really enjoy watching that. I can remember watching the 96 Olympics on probably and just being completely enthralled by it. And so that's, you know, part of what I think what made this when all of this came out even more shocking, I think, if it could be more shocking once we found out what all had gone on in there for so long. But let's get into that. So let's go back to 2016. And that's when so it was Marissa, how do you pronounce her last name? You know, my name's Shaughnessy, so I'm a little bit sensitive to that. And I don't want to mispronounce it. Kwiatowski, I believe. Marissa Kwiatowski from the Indy Star got a tip. It sounded like it was just kind of a general tip. Hey, look into how USA Gymnastics is handling allegations of sexual abuse because she'd already been working on some stories, I think, about sexual abuse, either within schools or sports organizations around the state of Indiana, because unfortunately, as always, it's ongoing. And so she did. And so what they found was pretty unbelievable. They launched into this investigation, which ended up being called, I think, Out of Balance. And they published a series of articles. And that first one ended up being published in March of 2016. And so Marissa started it. But then as they uncovered more and more stuff, other people joined in. Steve Berta, uh, Mark Alicia, and Tim Evans all, I think, had a hand in this. They're all featured in the documentary Athlete A. And what they uncovered at first was there's a lawsuit where a coach had abused someone and had been accused of abuse years earlier. And another coach or somebody within the gymnastics world had even said, I think in their complaint that he should be locked in a cage before someone is raped. Wow. So what did USA gymnastics do? Nothing, nothing, not a damn thing. And then, so they're like appalled by this, obviously. And they have no idea at that point in time that that is just the tip of the iceberg. They have no clue that they're getting ready to come into a world of hurt. So they find 54 coaches have been reported for sexual abuse, 54 in just a 10 year period. And what did the coaches do? 
they molested their kids. Why? <laughs> because they had this freaking policy. Steve Penny, who was the president of USA Gymnastics at the time, they had this policy where if a complaint came in and it didn't come directly from the child or the parents, so say a kid reported to their coach or somebody else within the hierarchy of USA Gymnastics, well, if it didn't come from the child or the parent, then that's hearsay because I'm not sure where Steve Penny went to law school, but apparently he knew enough to know that that was hearsay. Hell, lawyers don't even understand what hearsay is, let alone freaking marketing people, which is what his background was, by the way. But anyway, I digress. What the? I just... He, he said he, he actually was in a 2014 deposition. We'll get to that. Why was he in a deposition in 2014? You know, we're talking about 2016. And he said, he admits it. He's like, yeah, we don't turn him over. And like his demeanor in that deposition was just like arrogant anyway. But he said that he had, quote, inherited an executive policy of dismissing complaints as hearsay unless they were signed by a victim or a victim's parent or eyewitness. Okay, here's what's interesting about that. USA Gymnastics is headquartered here in Indianapolis. What is everyone in Indiana? A mandatory reporter. Yes. <laughs> and as we have talked about a bazillion times, it does not mean that you saw abuse, so you have to report it. It means suspicion of abuse. If you even suspect abuse, you are required to report it. And I believe that law has been in effect since like 2013. So what the hell, Steve Penny? And, you know, I'm so, I guess you could argue, oh, well, if the abuse that he heard about was in a different state, then it doesn't count. Well, g- give me a freaking break. Like, no. And you are the president of an organization that is revolved around children. It well, is your duty to protect them. I think it's also important to note that, again, what you just said, he is the president of the organization. And then when he comes in, he states, I inherited this process. Not my fault. No, that's not how it works. No. A leader's responsibility is to take a look at everything and create inappropriate thing. I mean, you don't walk into a dumpster fire and let it keep burning. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I like that comparison actually. Because Thank you. USA <laughs> is a dumpster fire or at least was for a very long time. You know, we could talk probably at length all day about the failures of Steve Penny within USA Gymnastics, and we're going to revisit it a little bit later, but obviously suffice it to say that this was complete bullshit and he just continued to do it. And we talk, we always talk about how these organizations don't tell because they think that they're protecting the integrity of the organization when in fact they are doing the exact opposite. And so this is just on a huge level where not only are they not doing that, but beyond that, they have culpability with all of these children being abused, period. Cause it would not have happened. We'll go, we're going to take a deep dive into the timeline here in a few minutes And they had so many different opportunities to do the right thing. And they just didn't do it. Yes. So, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I just feel like his lack of leadership created the culture that existed within USA Gymnastics. I mean, obviously there was some type of culture that already existed when he walked in and he just allowed it to continue and, or maybe made it worse. Oh, absolutely. Let's so let's get into that. So they they published that first report, Andy Stardust, and Rachel Den Hollander, who is an attorney and a former USA gymnastics athlete, just kind of stumbled upon it, just happens to see it. And she says in the documentary, her first thought was, I was right. I was right, and it's finally gonna come out. And so she emails the Indy Star, and she's the first person to tell the team about Nasser. Then comes Jessica Howard, then Jamie Dancher. Indy Star's thinking, Oh my God, we've got three women right now who are victims of the same person. They don't know each other. They have no idea that any of the others has reached out to us. How many are there? 
and they had no idea. They, they could have had any freaking clue at the time what they were really getting into. And so they go deeper into um, USA Gymnastics and that toxic culture there that you're talking about. Because it's important to talk about the fact that this was a very, very toxic culture and not just the sexual abuse. There's a clip in the documentary where a gymnast is hurt and Marta and Bella Crowley just look on with disdain. It's not any kind of concern for that kid. And is she okay? It's, mm, well, she's out, I guess. That's that's what I read on it. The Corollies were revered within this community. They were the coaches. We'll talk a little bit more about them in a little bit. But everybody loved them. And it was such an honor to be able to perform for them. And the training that they put these kids through was crazy. It's like 30 to 35 hours a week. And the Crowleys and Penny were, it was like they were on thrones. Everyone worshiped them. And I couldn't help but when it was like, every time it looks at Marta throughout the entire thing, she always looks disgusted. (laughs) It's like, everyone should be honored with my presence. Mm -hmm. Well, but they were. And so they had this ranch in Texas where this husband and wife, they're from Romania. They, I think they defected to the United States like in the seventies or something. And they had a history of abusing girls dating back to the seventies. And one of their colleagues said that he would, sl- back then he would slap them. He'd call them fat pigs, but he, you know, he said it was Romania. It was acceptable. And then they come here and I don't know that they were going that far, but they certainly were verbally and mentally abusive to these girls. They're training them for seven hours a day. They ranked them from bottom to top when they were at the ranch. And, you know, the kids, I think they, they hated that. But the thing is, it was an honor. Like they wanted to go to the Olympics. These people produce Olympians. And so they thought that this, I guess maybe was kind of the price of admission and the parents weren't allowed at the ranch And they couldn't talk to the kids hardly at all because there was no cell reception. And the parents also were talked into believing that that's just their system. This is going to produce the winner. Their kids wanted it. And so they did. One thing they didn't know was that Larry Nassar was there. And they had no idea. And they're not talking to their kids. So again, you know, unfettered access. We see this over and over when abusers have unfettered access to children. It's just prolific. Well, and honestly, the parents had no reason not to trust in the Corollis and in their process. And when your child has Olympic dreams and the parent also obviously wants to back their child's dreams, you trust that these adults have the best interest of the child in mind. And so you let them go. And even though they didn't have access to them, you know, like they couldn't speak to them. I mean, they're adults. So if you're an adult and you give your child over to another adult, for this type of training, you just assume that they're going to take, take care of them. I'm putting that in quotes, that they're going to take care of them and make sure that nothing bad happens to them in the meantime. Of course. And again, let's think about what we're talking about where this, this program is revered, even by like people who don't know anything, me and you are talking about how we love to watch gymnastics in the Olympics forever. And so who wouldn't trust them? I mean, it it seems there's like a, a winning great program and this is how they do it. And when you look further into it and you see what Nasser was doing, you can now, again, we can see the, the, the grooming is so obvious now, but maybe it wasn't back then, obviously. And, you know, I think we're getting better again at detecting those signs and talking about it, but he had everyone fooled. He was definitely a master manipulator. He'd been the USA gymnastics doctor for like 29 years. He was also a Michigan state university doctor, a prominent member of the community. He started a foundation for autistic children. 
And you know what really struck me in the documentary? One of the survivors said she still feels a little bit bad about telling the truth because he was the only nice one there. Yeah. You know, the, the child molester was the nice person. That's what these kids were dealing with out there. So I think that's a double point right there. It goes to his grooming, but it also goes to the absolutely horribly toxic culture that these kids were being brought up in. And I, like to me, it felt like they were just like out there on this deserted island alone, kind of with a little, <laughs> some degree of Stockholm syndrome. And Larry's just like this lowly, uh, who was nice to them, but it turned out to come with a cost. Well, and when you think about it too, I mean, again, I go back to, this is their Olympic dream. This is what they want more than anything is to be able to compete on that national worldwide stage. And, you know, they put up with so much verbal abuse and, you know, like mental abuse from their coaches that quite frankly, when they encountered this, they're like, and, and they, you know, some of them said it in within the documentary, when they were being interviewed, like, well, I mean, is it really that bad? Mm -hmm. At what point, at what point do you finally say enough? I'm out. I don't want this anymore. This is the straw that broke the camel's back. And the thing is you don't, because these are kids who have the mental fortitude of champions, obviously. And so they keep on keeping on because that's where they want to go. And that's what they want to do. And they're going to make it no matter what. And so I think for them, it was just like, this is what I have to deal with. And so they dealt with it, which is just another testament to how strong these women are. Mm -hmm. Very. So what's interesting too about this is we don't see this very often. We actually have video evidence of his grooming because he liked to produce these videos of his procedures and you watch him and he seems a little creepy to me, but again, I have the, um, got the, you know, the benefit of hindsight. I wasn't, I think I, I would probably have thought he was weird, but who knows if you would have picked up on it or not, but he called them tender teaching moments or TTX. And I'm like, you freaking weirdo. He called the osteopathic procedures. And so in these videos, you know, he's trying to give himself credit and it sounds super legit because all he does is like put these big words together. And I've said this a hundred times. If you say something with conviction and you're confident, people will believe you. It doesn't matter what <laughs> bullshit you're spewing. They're like, hey, man, she sounds like she knows what she's talking about. And so I think that's kind of a method he employed. He's like, just they don't know. They're not doctors. So put all this crap together. And I can't remember who it was in the documentary, but somebody said, if you mute the videos and you watch what he was doing. Like the frequency and ease that he touched the children was wildly inappropriate. And it's right there in color for us to see. And, you know, a lot of people didn't see it. And because he was so good at that, he was good at grooming, obviously, the athletes, but certainly the adults around them, including within the program and the parents, Michigan State University officials, everyone was fooled by this man for a really long time. Yeah. And I think watching the videos, it was kind of interesting because there are some excerpts of them in athlete a, and you know, he's, he acts really goofy and, you know, he's making other sounds, you know, when he's trying to do an adjustment on an athlete and you're kind of thinking, well, yeah, I understand that these athletes are a little bit on the younger side, but it still just struck me as kind of weird. If I'm, if I'm receiving medical attention, I don't want someone to be like, Oh, pop, pop, pop. Here we go. You know, like that's just weird. Weird. It just makes me think, did adults, <laughs> did any adults see these videos and kind of think, oh, okay. I mean, is that really speaking on the children's level and, and getting to them in a way where they feel confident about his treatment? And also, it, it also makes me think about what did other people in the medical field think of his videos? Because you know, as well as I do, any professional in any industry, when you 
hear someone else talk about something that you mm-hmm. have knowledge of, I mean, you truly do know whether or not they're knowledgeable. I mean, you've heard people present on things and you're like, wow, she really doesn't know what she's talking about <laughs> or, or the opposite. Hopefully it's like, wow, I learned so much by listening to this person. They are definitely an authority on this topic. I would be very interested in hearing what did other doctors think after mm-hmm. they saw his videos that he put together. That's a really interesting point. And one that I hadn't even thought of, I know that other doctors knew that he'd been reported, but I don't know. I would assume that other doctors saw the videos, right? So yeah, why wouldn't, but again, like it's this blind faith that we have in doctors, generally speaking, I think. And then he has this established track record of being a phenomenal physician and helping out with this revered program. And I get, I don't know if that goes into it too, but it's interesting in terms of another medical professional. I hadn't even considered that. So if we look into the timeline, Nasser had been associated with USA Gymnastics since he was actually still a medical student. Like back in 1986, he first joins as an athletic trainer and then in 88 begins working with kids in 1988 as a volunteer. Shock, shock. That's how they do. They like weasel their way in, you know, right here. And then they're like, they charm them in whatever way for him. And he was good at it. Don't get me wrong. Like they figure out what it is that they're good at. And then they, it's like they own that persona. And for him, it was a a quirky, nice guy, do, 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 you know, and it worked. And so that probably went to it too. Cause people were like that guy, no way. No, he's yeah. Well, heck yeah, he was for probably the entire time when he was in 1992, when he was still a medical student, he abused a 12 year old girl under the guise of medical research. And I don't think that we knew about that one until later. I don't think that I'm not positive, but I don't think that one had gotten reported back then, but that at least establishes a timeline that we know at least since 1992, that he is touching children. So he gets his medical degree. We know that now in 1994, he abused Jamie Dancher. He continues to work his way up within the organization and he's the national medical coordinator. He's the team physician. He's an assistant professor at Michigan State. We go to 1997. A parent complains about Nasser's treatments in USAG. Guess what they did again? Nothing. That's right. The theme today is nothing. <laughs> um, in that same year, a second girl reported to a different coach. She said that the coach just couldn't believe that was happening and that I must be misunderstanding what was going on. And that's another thing that we're going to see here today. That these trusted adults, these individuals, including another doctor, said the same things. Basically, you should be so lucky that you get to be treated by him. It's disgusting. So 98, he abuses the six-year-old daughter of her friend. I think that she goes on to be the first woman who testified at the sentencing And I think that she is the only one that we know of that it wasn't under the guise of medical treatment. This is just a friend's child. And it was like at his apartment and stuff. And he convinced her parents to disregard what she was saying. And again, and like, I I, I want people to understand because everybody loves to play Monday morning quarterback. Support for survivors is sponsored by the law firm Cohen and Malad. Cohen and Malad attorneys have over two decades of experience helping sexual abuse survivors. We work through the civil court process to get justice and compensation that can help pay for resources needed to heal from your trauma and move forward. We are proud of the work we do in giving power to your voice. And now, back to our show. Because every lady loves to play Monday morning quarterback. I'm like, well, I would have done this and I would have done that. And you do not know. You don't know because if every, if it it was so easy to see a child molester, if you just looked at him and you could tell that was a child molester, it'd be easy as hell, but that's not how it works. They groom these people. And if nothing else from this podcast, I hope people believe their kids, believe them. 
They don't make this up. I'm not saying there aren't false allegations. Okay. I'm not going to get into that. We're not going down that road, but believe your freaking kids. So then this is interesting to me, really interesting to me. In 1999 and 2000, Michigan State University athletes complain on him. So these aren't younger kids. These are college age students. So we're talking like legal adults, a cross country athlete told the athletic program staff that she was sexually assaulted by him when receiving treatment for an injured hamstring. Her concerns were dismissed by a coach who said that Nasser was an Olympic doctor and knew what he was doing. A softball player told three athletic trainers at the university and one staff member, she told four people that he was sexually inappropriate during medical treatments. And she was told that she was fortunate enough to receive the best medical care possible from a world renowned doctor. All right. So at this point in time, we're in 2000 and we already have at least four documented reports, not just what happened. Cause we know now that he was abusing girls this entire time, but we've got four documented reports. So shame on you, Michigan state university for sure. So then we go to 2004. We know now that he was soliciting and receiving child pornography. Then a 17 year old came to him for treatment for scoliosis. He abuses her. She and her mom made a report. And this time they didn't just make a report to the university or to USA gymnastics. They actually went to the police in 2004. 2004. He's interviewed by police and he defends his actions as a valid medical treatment. And how did he do that? With a PowerPoint. <laughs> like, I gotta tell you, that's a first one for me. I've never seen a freaking defendant be like, well, let's let me uh, bring you to my PowerPoint here. What the? I think I'd be like, you weirdo? Like, what? <laughs> who would have that prepared? Like, who would think, hmm, why do I have to defend this? You shouldn't. If it's a valid medical procedure, you shouldn't have a freaking PowerPoint ready over here to defend what you're doing. That's not how it works. And I can't help but wonder, did they go ask any other doctors? You know, like yeah. you have to wonder because as we see today, huge failure across a system here of adults who are supposed to be trusted and officials too, until finally, you know, the buck stops here with Michigan State Police farther on down the road. But my God, look how long it took. Well, I think that's part of the it's, it's important, right? When, when detectives do speak to someone who they, they received a report on, I thought it was really compelling that the one detective that's featured in the documentary, she showed clips of when she interviewed yeah. him and she talked about her experience with it. And I really liked that what she said, because obviously she's a detective. She doesn't have a medical background at all. Mm -hmm. And he tries to weasel his way out yeah. of the accusation by using anatomical words and these long explanations, you know, and he's trying to explain what the situation was and how he was trying to work on it. And she said, you know, but it, you know, it kind of doesn't matter. Right. Cause she's an adult and she's listening to what he says. And yes, yeah, she doesn't know what some of these words are, but as she's thinking through it, she's like, at no point does it make sense to me that in order for you to work on that particular area of a woman's body, why would you have your hand in her vagina or in right. her anus? That does not make any sense to me as an adult person. <laughs> I don't understand mm -hmm. why you would need to do that. And quite frankly, you aren't really explaining to me a medical need for that. And so it's like, she's almost the first person to call bullshit on right. him coming in and in trying 2016. to explain his <laughs> Yeah. Why did it take until 2016 for that? I I've really, I, I'm so glad that they were able to include that footage in there is detective Andrea Mumford. She, and you know, the attorney general, the prosecutor on the case, Angie Povolitis, they were the, they were the ones who finally said no enough and they did everything right. And thank God. 
And finally he was stopped, but that was a really interesting footage. He was saying that, well, a Cossack's problem calls for insertion of finger. And she was like, what? And so yeah. she's like, well, it doesn't make sense. And so she said that he would just get nervous because she would ask, ask more specific questions and he started sweatering and stuttering. And then in the classic abuser, always do this. He tries to reframe it to blame the girls. I can't yeah. tell you how many times I've seen that. Well, and one um, of the things he said was, well, who said it, you know, and if they thought it was inappropriate, I mean, why wouldn't they say something to me while I'm doing it? And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> right. Um, he, he would get talking about specific parts of the body and he'd be like, well, you don't need to know that. Or you wouldn't understand that. And she'd be like, well, explain it to me. And then he couldn't, he could never explain why you wouldn't ever need vaginal penetration to fix it. And then she brought up him getting erections during the exams. You know, she's like, it's been reported that you get erections during the exams. He said, well, I shouldn't be getting an erection during the exam. And if there was arousal, it, it would be because of, I don't know, whatever. Sometimes when you're a guy, you just get an erection. And I think you're right. It's the first time somebody's calling bullshit on him. And so he really doesn't do well with it. So going back to that timeline real quick, back in 2014, a Michigan State grad reports to a doctor at the Michigan State Sports Medicine Clinic that she was sexually assaulted by Nasser back when she was in high school, when he was treating her for an injury. And the university president, by the way, at that time was made aware of the Title IX complaint and that a police report had been filed. So he continued to treat patients for 16 months during that investigation, 16 months. Ugh. And then the university investigation did not pass any information to prosecutors until July of 15. Okay. In December of that year, a prosecutor tells police that Nasser would not be charged. Okay. Think about that. December of 2015. By that time, Maggie Nichols had already reported to Steve Penny. You cannot tell me that Steve Penny did not know that. You cannot tell me that Steve Penny didn't know the history of allegations against him. And as we know later, he tampered with some evidence and tried to cover it up. So June of 15 is when Maggie Nichols reports Nasser, and they basically get the runaround for a really long time from USA Gymnastics. So that's in 2015. In March of 16, we've got that first Indy Star report. Then in April, Maggie had had like a really strong year. She was second only to Simone Biles going into the Olympic trials and things were going pretty well for her. And it was looking good. Like she was going to make the Olympic team, but then she started getting treated differently. She was supposed to be in a commercial with Simone Biles, but Steve Penny wouldn't allow it. Then meanwhile, he's telling the family, the FEI investigation is ongoing. So you need to be patient. Just be patient. Don't say anything to anybody else because that'll, that'll affect the investigation. So you got to keep this quiet to yourself. And the family was like, well, Steve and Marta know that Maggie reported. So we don't want to make them mad. So they just, you know, they abided by that. And prior to the Olympic trials, the Nichols family, the other families, they were kind of treated like celebrities and were really just given the VIP treatment. And then coming into the Olympic trials, that continued for everyone else, but it stopped for the Nichols family. And Maggie performed very well, like I said, over that year. She was the sixth all around at that, at that itself, yet she did not make the five-person team, nor was she even named one of the three alternates. That's suspect, to say the least. So then in August, that's when Rachel DeHollander first gives an interview to Tim Evans from the Indy Star. She files a police report. Indy Star releases that explosive second part of the series. It's so bad that the United States Senate is so concerned that they send a letter to Steve Penny like, what the hell, dude? Like, you got to get it together. And this is a quote from the letter. Quote, the report details failures by USA Gymnastics to alert authorities of sex abuse allegations against several coaches, despite being notified of serious allegations on numerous occasions. Some allegations were allowed to linger for years before any action was taken, leaving young victims and the supervision of sexual predators. That pretty much says it all. And that's exactly what happened. 
So sometime in 2015, and like the timeline gets a little hazy here because USA Gymnastics says one thing and Nasser says another thing. Ultimately, I do believe that he was allowed to retire because, you know, he was running for a school board. So um, he had he was really busy with that school board campaign, which, by the way, he still received after all of this was out. He still received 22 percent of the vote. <laughs> what? Like people voted for him. Mm. If it's more than 0%, I'm like, what the? And that's after everything. Like, he he's no longer associated with them at some point. And then Michigan State fires him. Toward the end of 2016, he finally starts getting charged. In November of 16, he's charged with three counts of sexual abuse. At that time, roughly 50 complaints had been received by the attorney general. And he tells the press at that time, listen, this is just the tip of the iceberg. They knew what was coming because they could see, I mean, you can see it. Like, once you've been prosecuting for long enough, you can tell when it's going to get way worse. 50 complaints is astronomical. And they know that this guy's had access to these kids for 30 years. Then in December of 16, separately, he's indicted on federal porn charges. I'm not going to explain exactly what it means, federal versus state, but they are two different systems and you can get time in both of them and they can be run stacked one on top of the other run consecutively, which is what ends up happening here. Then there's a lawsuit filed in federal court against him, the university, USA Gymnastics, and one of the clubs. Not until January of 2017 does the state even suspend his medical license. I'm like, so he could have been treating people that entire time. I'd like to say, well, no one's going to go to him, but 22% of the people voted for him for school board. So, because, you know, he knows what's best for kids, right? So then in February of 17, he's got an additional 22 charges filed. So the total number of complaints at that point is 80. June, 23 more women and girls joined the federal lawsuit. Now they have over a hundred complaints. July is when he pleads guilty to the child porn charges in the federal system. He's not sentenced yet, but he pleads guilty. And then in November, he pleads guilty in Ingram County, uh, Michigan, to seven counts of criminal sexual misconduct, first degree, and three counts in Eaton County. So two, two different counties, he's pleading guilty to multiple counts. Then in December, he gets sentenced to 60 years in prison on the federal child porn charges. And meanwhile, simultaneously, Michaela Maroney, who is an Olympian, files a lawsuit saying that USA Gymnastics paid her to sign a non-disclosure in late 2016 so she wouldn't talk about abuse by Nasser. I mean, they were willing to go to great lengths to try to cover this up. So not only did they not stop him, they didn't do anything to protect these kids for 30 years. But when it finally does start to come out, they still don't protect him. They try to cover it up. They protect him, not the kids. Because that's the bottom line. You're either with the pedophile or you're with the child, period. So then take us into 2018 and I encourage anyone, everyone to watch Athlete A, first of all, because it's really well done, but to watch the part where the 156 women read the victim impact statements. It was like an eight day sentencing hearing. The judge was amazing and gave every single woman the opportunity to look him in the face and tell him what he had done. And he had to sit there and listen to it all. And I think that was so important and so powerful and so empowering. And I think that other survivors who've watched the footage felt empowered by it too. Well, because there's still countless other survivors who haven't come forward. They're not at the point where they want to tell their story for whatever their personal reasons are, and they chose not to participate in this. So at least hopefully they were paying attention to that and got some kind of strength from listening to other people share their stories. I feel like not just this case of USA Gymnastics, but there's lots of other ones. When it involves someone as horrible as Nasser preying on 
that number of people, the power in telling is so strong because quite frankly, if it wasn't for the courage that Rachel Den Hollander showed and Jessica Hauer showed in coming forward and think about how hard it would have to be to yeah. tell a newspaper, it's hard enough probably to go to a trusted loved one and say, mm-hmm. Hey, this, this happened to me, but to go to the media, you know, that you don't even know what they could possibly say about it. Yeah. You know, they felt compelled enough to do that. And I, one thing I thought was important about what Rachel Den Hollander said, you know, cause people, of course, there's always these skeptics, right? It's like, well, if this happened to you so many years ago, why are you bothering to come forward now? Like, what do you want out of it? And okay. I want justice first sure. of all. And second of all, she's like, I'm a mom, mm-hmm. you know, and for a lot of people becoming a mother is the thing that makes them stop and realize I would do anything humanly possible and quite frankly, not humanly possible to protect this child Mm -hmm. from any harm that could come to it. And I think that's what gave her the strength and said, Mm -hmm. I have no choice. I have to come forward because I'm pretty sure he was doing this before I came to see him. And I'm pretty sure he was probably doing it after. And I just want it. It needs to stop. Yeah, absolutely. The strength displayed by these women is just, it's so powerful and so overwhelming. I just am so impressed with them and they've not been quiet about their disgust and reproach of USA Gymnastics and about how they do have culpability. And I think that is so important that they're like, if it weren't for them, none of this would have happened to so many of these women. And I think that kind of also illustrates a little bit the importance of civil litigation because so often people are like, oh, I chest about money, but it is in the terms of for them, because if you don't go after them in that way, they don't change their ways very clearly. Like if nothing else, this case illustrates, they don't change their ways unless they freaking have to. And so sometimes that's what this litigation does is it helps get that done when other ways aren't getting it done. But watching that, it was just so powerful to see them all come and take a stand against him. And he looked so pathetic and puny. And I was like, good. She sentenced him to 40 to 175 years in prison consecutive to that 60 year. So that's on top of that. And she said to him, I find that you don't get it, that you are a danger. You remain a danger. I'm a judge who believes in life and rehabilitation when rehabilitation is possible. I have many defendants come back and show me the great things they've done in their lives after probation, after parole. I don't find that's possible with you. Wow. Awesome. Like I'm telling you what, a lot of judges, they don't get it either. And so it's nice. It's, I mean, to some extent, it's easy on such a case like this where you've got hundreds of people who've come forward. It's it's refreshing, though, to see a judge actually understand that you've got, I mean, he's a monster, and I don't think that anything's ever going to change that. He's been doing it for way too long. So then he also got sentenced to another 40 to 125 years in a different county in Michigan. And so as time went on, some other people were indicted, like some of the coaches within the organization And Steve Penny was indicted for tampering with evidence for ordering the destruction of key documents at the Corley Ranch after he learned that Nassar was being investigated. So, you know, so many people are like, oh, he did the right thing. He was trying. And I think it's really hard when you look at all of this added up together to think that that's true. It seems pretty clear to me that that's not the case. Another point that I thought was really interesting, Tim Evans from the Indy Star was being interviewed and he interviewed Larry himself and he said that when he left and Asser was crying and pleading with him to not run the story because it was going to ruin his life because this is you know back a little bit before still and Tim said I had to keep reminding myself not to feel sorry for him and again like that's how good at grooming he was even Tim knows Tim's a good, cool dude he's a great guy we both know him and 
even he who's investigated all kinds of claims like this has been a great advocate for survivors within the media to get these stories out there. Even he was like, I had to tell myself, do not feel sorry for him. This, you know, this guy did all of these things that shows how good he is at grooming. That brings us to kind of the end of that part of it. And I was talking to somebody the other day and they're like, well, what about now? Has USA Gymnastics changed their ways? Well, I don't really know. I can tell you one thing though. I went to their website and it doesn't seem like it to me. I know that they fired everyone and they got all new staff and they have all these protocols in place now, supposedly. And they're not, these rules where coaches aren't allowed to be alone with them. They're not going to some freaking remote ranch in the middle of Texas, which by the way, the Crowley's sued USA Gymnastics for breaking their lease at the ranch. Like that tells you how those people are. They have put all these things into place, but I think it's kind of one of those things only time will tell and the gymnasts are the ones you're going to know. But the website was like, and I don't know if there were like any legal ramifications of some of this is at the behest of their attorneys, but there's nothing in there that recognizes it. And sometimes I think that's what's important. It's like, hey, we effed up for a really long time and we're sorry and we're doing better. But there's nothing like that. There's two links on the homepage that go to different things about safe sport and the importance of knowing the red flags of abuse and helping to prevent it and what to do, blah, blah, blah. But what about the 30 years where you didn't? I don't know. That just spoke to me. These things happen all the time. And again, everybody wants to say wouldn't happen if it was my kid or if I was involved in that, but it does. It's the same crap that was like with Jerry Sandusky at Penn state. You know, he started that kids organization and he actually, someone saw him anally raping a child (laughs) and they didn't, nothing happened. And that person thought they did the right thing. They went and they reported it to Joe Paterno. And I think the athletic director, and he was severely traumatized by seeing that. And they didn't do anything, you know, Nasser, like we see this over and over and over again. And so I think it's important to highlight the protocols that organizations need to have when you've got anything, a sports organization, a school, a church, any organization that has this unfettered access to children, you better make damn sure that you have these protocols in place and that you're adhering to them. You better be doing everything in your power to prevent this from happening. And if it does happen, you better report it immediately, like now, not tomorrow, and do the right thing. If you don't, more kids are going to get hurt, period. That's how this works. Any parting thoughts to wrap up, Jamie? I think that it's important to note, if you haven't seen Athlete A yet, there's a really cool opportunity coming up this month. On Monday, April 19th, Shaughnessy is actually going to be sitting on a panel with the Indiana Coalition for Crime Victims' Rights. They're going to do a virtual screening of Athlete A at 6 p.m. So you can go to their Facebook page, the Indiana Coalition for Crime Victims' Rights. You can go to their Facebook page and click on the Eventbrite link and register for it, and you'll get a link, and you can watch Athlete A with everyone else. And then afterwards, there's going to be a panel discussion about the documentary. And so I know that Shaughnessy is going to speak and also Tim Evans from the Mm -hmm. Indianapolis Star. And who else is going to be on that panel? Do you recall? Um, I know there's going to be a prosecutor on there, some other advocates, people from all over. Good. So then that'll give you an opportunity to ask any questions that you might have to follow up on this story. I think it's a really cool opportunity to not only dive a little bit deeper into the entire story about what unfolded, but also talk to some of these people who were there when the Mm -hmm. investigation started. So I invite everyone to sign up for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it'll be a really good 
a good event. So thank you everyone for listening. If you have any questions or you would like to submit a request for guests, just go to supportforsurvivors.com and there is a place to do that. And we will see you next time. Thank you.